Chapter 8 of Tutankhamun and the Discovery of His Tomb by the late Lord Carnarvon and Mr. Howard Carter by Sir Grafton Elliot Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Ethics of Desecration With the awakening of a worldwide interest in the tomb of Tutankhamun, there has been a good deal of not altogether relevant discussion about the ethics of desecration, which is none the less unfortunate because it is inspired by ignorance of the real facts of the case. By inflaming feeling, it may help to defeat the object everyone concerned is doing his utmost to achieve, that is, to secure the adequate protection and reverent treatment of the dead pharaoh and his fellow sleepers. Hence, it is necessary to put the issue in its true light. It seems to have been overlooked by those who write about leaving the royal mummies in their own tombs that in the past only one of them was actually found in his own tomb, and that this pharaoh, Amenhotep II, was left there reposing in his own sarcophagus. It is equally important to note that it was Mr. Howard Carter who is in charge of the present work for the late Lord Carnarvon, and who was at that time Inspector of Antiquities at Luxor, who was largely responsible for this decision. Nor is it any secret that those responsible for the present work propose to leave the mummy of Tutankhamun in the tomb, provided that the risk of damage can be guarded against. The issue raised by the oft-repeated protests against desecration is complicated by the fact that in every case the mummies of the pharaohs were plundered and grossly maltreated by their own subjects more than thirty centuries ago. And, except in two or three instances, they were unceremoniously removed from their own tombs and hidden away in any place that happened to be convenient. If archaeologists did not open and examine these tombs, there is no doubt that in time the native tomb robbers of Luxor, the most experienced members of their craft to be found anywhere, would in time discover the hidden tombs, plundering them and destroying the historical evidence. There can be no question that the work of the archaeologist, when conscientiously done, saves the ancient tombs from willful destruction and gives the mummies and the furniture a new lease of assured existence. So long as these tombs are left alone, there is always the risk that they will be desecrated at any moment. The problem which the archaeologist has to solve, once he has opened a tomb, is what is the proper course to take with reference to the mummies in the funerary equipment. It is claimed by many writers to the press that at any rate, the bodies of the kings ought to be restored. But even if it were possible to replace the royal mummies in their own tombs, and to persuade the museums of the world to return their sarcophagi and funerary equipment, it would still be a moot point whether such procedures would save them from desecration. For, unless large sums of money are spent in equipping the tombs against the attacks of robbers and providing guards, such measures would defeat the purpose that prompted them. The mummies would become the lure for the greed of the Theban population, which for sixty centuries and more has been habituated to tomb-robbing, and has shown little respect for the mummies of even the most famous of its rulers. 
In fact, the most powerful sovereigns of Egypt have suffered worst at the hands of the people of their own metropolis. The mummies of the greatest emperors and wisest statesmen of the 18th dynasty, such as Thotmes III and Amenhotep III, were stripped and badly mutilated, and it is more likely than not that the mummy of the famous Hat Shepsut, the Queen Elizabeth of Egyptian history, was totally destroyed. Even when Amenhotep II, together with the mummies found with him, were left in his own tomb, it was not long before the tomb was entered by plunderers, and wanted damage inflicted on the bodies left in it. In my volume of the official catalogue of the Cairo Museum dealing with the royal mummies, gruesome evidence is given of the mutilation effected upon the bodies of a prince and two princesses in this tomb, both by ancient and modern robbers. The moral of all this is that unless the tomb is rendered burglar-proof, and in addition is protected by adequate guards, it is inviting desecration to leave the mummies in them. Everyone immediately concerned with the problem of Tutankhamun's mummy agrees that, if it is feasible, it should be left in its own tomb and adequately protected there, after a thorough examination of it has been made, and all the information as to age and infirmities which the X-rays can afford has been obtained. The late Lord Carnarvon was strongly in favor of this course of action, and Mr. Howard Carter has always been in favor of leaving the mummies in their tombs. But if this is done, they must be adequately guarded, for it is not an exaggeration to claim that in the past the removal of the royal mummies to the Cairo Museum saved them from destruction, or from being broken up for disposal to tourists. In former centuries, some of them were sold to druggists, for as Sir Thomas Brown expressed it two and a half centuries ago, the Egyptian mummies which Cambyses or time hath spared, avarice now consumeth. Mummy is become merchandise, Mizraim cures wounds, and Pharaoh is sold for balsams. But apart from such considerations, the fact has not received due acknowledgment that the archaeologists who are investigating the tomb of Tutankhamun are clearly not engaged in a work of destruction or of desecration, but are striving to preserve his remains and his treasured possessions, and to secure his name and his record from the oblivion which he himself and his representatives strove so hard to avert. The relatively slight disturbance of the antechamber holds out the prospect that the mummy also may have been spared that wanton destruction which was the fate of so many pharaohs of his dynasty, although it is to be expected that the valuable gold objects upon the body are not likely to have escaped the plunderers. If the mummy is found, an examination of it by means of the x-rays will be made. But whatever measures are adopted for wresting from it the story it has to tell, no one need be anxious about its desecration. No damage of any sort will be inflicted upon the body. Every precaution will be taken to assure that prolongation of its existence within its own sarcophagus which the embalmer of 32 centuries ago aimed at achieving. In the commentary on the discoveries in Tutankhamun's tomb, I have dealt mainly with aspects of the new revelation of Egyptian customs and beliefs 
that to most readers may seem less impressive than the dazzling display of artistic treasures which has aroused in them an interest in archaeology but to the student who is interested in tracing out the origin of the customs and beliefs which have shaped the fabric of civilization and influenced the trends of even our own thoughts the objective expression of ancient beliefs displayed in tutankhamun's tomb is the most important outcome of mr howard carter's discovery for it enables us to realize more vividly than before the relentless and persistent logic with which the ancient egyptian theologian strove by any and every device he could think of to make as certain as any physical or magical procedure could make it to give a new lease of life for existence to the dead many modern scholars object to the use of the word logic to apply to a series of procedures inconsistent the one with the other except in their ultimate aim and are constantly emphasizing and marveling at their lack of cogency and consistency but the modern psychologist has recently been insisting that we ourselves and in fact all mankind are just as illogical as the ancient egyptian priesthood in our everyday life we are hourly doing things as glaringly inconsistent the one with the other as anything that the egyptians ever did it is merely that our wider acquaintance with the nature of matter and the properties of living creatures enables us the more readily to hide our inconsistencies and rationalize our statements so as to hide our ignorance and lack of cogency in this connection it is important to try to put ourselves in the position of the theologians of tutankhamun's time and ask whether it is likely that they really imagined the ceremonial couches to be potent to transfer the dead king to the sky they knew perfectly well that the couches could not affect this physical transference to a topographical heaven but long usage had accustomed them to attach a definite symbolic meaning to the ceremonial practice of placing the mummy of the king upon such couches this was supposed to confer upon the dead king immortality and divinity to identify him with the sun-god re in the sky the problem which is perhaps responsible for most disagreement between egyptian scholars today is the relationship of the two gods osiris and re with both of which the dead king was identified as a means of attaining immortality the obvious connecting link between them is the role assigned to Horus, who, as the son of Osiris, is charged with the function of securing for the dead king the same boons which he was able to confer on Osiris. Yet, as a sun god, intimately associated with Re, Horus could also secure for him the solar heaven and enable him to dwell with Re, if not be identified with him, in the sun there is a profound difference of opinion whether osiris or re was the earlier god philologists like professor breasted and dr blackman who derive their knowledge from the literary texts which however were not put into writing until all thought and expression were dominated by the sun cult and the pyramid texts were actually written by heliopolitan priests insist on the priority of the sun god re ethnologists who know how relatively recent is the belief in the sky world and in sun worship insist upon the priority of the god osiris 
who was originally a king on earth. To my mind, the whole conception of deity and the attributes of the earliest gods can be understood and explained only if we admit that Osiris was the first god and that Re acquired his reputation secondarily from Osiris. In Tutankhamun's tomb, the one idea that informed the funerary ritual and equipment was this identification with Osiris, and the solar embellishments are clearly additions to the more ancient practices. I have entered in detail into the interesting problems of the funerary couches in order to bring out in a definite and concrete form the essential meaning of the whole equipment of Tutankhamun's tomb. What renders the obtrusiveness of the Osirian element in Tutankhamun's ritual additionally significant is the fact that he had been a worshipper of the sun's disk, the Aten, and had just been converted to that denomination of the Re-cult which was associated with Amun. But although these different forms of the sun cult were in turn his confessed beliefs, it is a striking demonstration of the fundamental nature of the Osirian cult that it dominates the ceremonies of Tutankhamun's death and burial. End of chapter 8 End of Tutankhamun and the Finding of His Tomb by the late Lord Carnarvon and Mr. Howard Carter by Sir George Eliot Smith